Genesis chapter 1. If you would, take your Bible, join me. Genesis chapter number 1. I don't know if your mom or your wife or, for that matter, your husband or your dad has ever cooked something for you for the first time and then followed up your first few initial uh, tastings of what they have presented and said something like, well, how do you like it? Okay, now how you answer that is, is of extreme importance, okay? That's not just something you take casually, you have to give it some thought. Now, think about the difference, same words, just different inflection. How did you like it? It's good. Okay, now right there, you just blew it, guys, in case you're wondering. Uh, it's good. Um, so you don't like it? No, 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 no. I said it's good. Well, how do you like it? I mean, it's good. All right. It's just a losing battle. Just, just walk away from the table and don't say another word. Okay, then, then there's this. Hey, how do you like it? It's good. And it's good. All right. Now that, you're communicating something else. Now here is the, the creme de la creme. Okay, this is the, the pinnacle of good answers. How do you like it? It's very good. Like this is, this is very good. Okay, now you just communicated something beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not just, it's good. Um, no, 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 it's, it's good. Listen, this is very good. If you were asked the question, how is your God? How is your God? I mean, as you relate to him in the circumstances of your life and someone says, hey, how's God been to you? Like even right now, how is God to you? How would you answer that question? Well, I mean, he's good. The title of our message today is Always and Only Good. Always and only good. You know, one of the early observations that becomes quite obvious in the theme regarding the entire Bible is something that we're going to see set forth in the opening verses of Scripture. Often in any good book, you're going to get to know the primary, the main character early, sometimes within the first few lines of the book as is the case that we have in the word of God. And then you're also going to get to know the supporting characters, those other important figures, although not primary, still woven throughout the course of the story. It should be noted that you and I are not the main characters of the story. We are significant. We're a supporting cast, but the story is not first and foremost about us. It's interesting how this collides with much of how we have framed our theology. For example, I'm not saying that, that you should never use this, but the more I've been thinking about it, and particularly the more I've thought about it in connection with what we're seeing in this message, in this passage of Scripture, I'm not so certain that it's a great thing to say, that I have used before and maybe you have as well. 
Do you know, if you were the only person on the face of the earth, Jesus Christ would have died just for you. You say, well, why is that not such a great expression or a statement to use? I would offer just a couple reasons. First, because the Bible doesn't deal really or primarily with abstract questions about non-existent realities. And then more importantly, this statement seems to put the value of man at the center of the universe rather than the value of our great God. Again, we remind ourselves that the central figure of all the Bibles introduced to us in the first words of Scripture, in, in this first chapter alone, in the beginning, God. And God then is referenced no fewer than 32 times in this chapter. God created four times. God said eight times. God saw seven times. God made three times. And so we also find God called, God set, God blessed, God divided. That this, this opening chapter of Scripture is all about God. Clearly, this is a story about God, and it tells us about his creation. That is, about what he created, and that his creation was not only good, lest there be any question regarding what is it that God did, it was very good. Our, our text today, Genesis 1.31 says simply this, and God saw that everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Okay, in Genesis 1-1, we begin with the understanding that God is. This book of beginnings is gonna take us far beyond a recognition of his existence. Yes, we know that God is. But now we're going to have to go further and ask ourselves some questions. We know he is, but what kind of God is he? So he is, and now we're confronted with, in the beginning, God. And then we're confronted with, in the beginning, God created. If I can't get past God is, I can't go any further in the rest of the book. The rest of the book does me no more true value if I don't get past God is. And then everything else is up for debate if I can't get past, in the beginning, God created. I've got some things that I'm going to be confronted with before I can process all the wonderful, beautiful truths of Scripture. And now in this opening chapter of the book of Genesis, I'm confronted with something else. Is God exclusively, always, and only good? It's a really important question. In fact, we start to scratch our heads at times because it feels like there's this incongruity between our circumstances and what we're seeing unfold in the pages of Scripture. So we're told God is good. Whatever he does, it is the culmination of very good. But it doesn't seem like our lives always have the same concluding message. So is he good? Is he good because he gives you what you want? Or is he by his very nature good and therefore deserves for you to give him whatever he wants? Now, this is an important statement that, that much of what we're going to address is going to hinge upon. Is God good 
And so the reason he's good is because God does so many good things for me. Or is God good, therefore it really makes sense for me to give him whatever he wants because he is good. Let's observe what scripture says in Genesis chapter 1. Verse number four, and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. Verse 10, and God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he sees. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12, and the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and tree, tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 18, and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21, and God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25, and God made the beast of the earth after his kind, the cattle after their kind, everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And then we get to verse number 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. The accumulation of God's creative acts was not only that which was good, it's now pronounced very good. And the challenge again that you and I face today is that there appears to be an incongruity between the explanation of God's work and our experience of God's world. So here is a God, and we know God is good and therefore he does works that are good. It's why the Bible takes pains to say that God did this and it was good. God does that and it's good. And then we put it all together and everything that God did, it's very good. We're found asking the question, how can a loving God allow so many bad things to happen to good people? And sometimes we're saying, and me being one of them. C.S. Lewis asked some very difficult questions. And these are the questions that actually bolstered his early belief that there was no God. Here's what he asked. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if, and if God were, were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. The creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either the goodness or the power or both. The problem with this reasoning is a lack of understanding that includes first an understanding of the nature of man's free will, an understanding of the nature of God and the nature of his love and an understanding of our ultimate good. So let's pause for a moment and let's use the one that the Bible offers for us as our example. That is Jesus who suffered injustice to the greatest degree. He suffered as a sinner yet was the one who knew no sin 
And when we study the life of Jesus, I'm not sure that we ever see any indication that Jesus sought to be pleased with the Father. Now, let me say that again. I've not done an extensive study on this, but as I'm preparing for this message, I'm starting to think, can I come up with an idea, an example in scripture where it shows that Jesus sought by evaluation to say, I'm pleased with what God did in my life. It doesn't appear that Jesus is ever evaluating God on the basis of what God is doing for him. It appears that he was seeking to allow his life to be evaluated. And how am I doing in my works as it pertains to a God who is good and deserves all that I have to offer? In John chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, the Bible says, Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the son of man. Now he's talking to a group that are questioning him. And he says, listen, when you have crucified me, Jesus knows even early in his ministry to the end or for, for what end he has come. Then Jesus said, when ye have lifted up, crucified the son of man, then shall ye know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. Did you know the word of there is also translated throughout scripture as the word for? I do nothing of myself. I do nothing for myself. But as my father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The father hath not left me alone for I do always those things that please him. Again, the focus of Jesus doesn't seem to be evaluating God and his workings in his life. It appears to be Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus, appears to be looking at his actions and saying, how do my actions align with pleasing the father? Not asking, how do the father's actions align with pleasing me? Again, it appears the focus of the life of Jesus was that he would please the Father, not that the Father would please him. Yet how often do we go through life wondering why God isn't living up to our expectations rather than wondering if we're living up to his? Truly, Jesus was the ultimate unjust sufferer. In other words, he suffered unjustly. Pastor James Montgomery Boyce offered some insightful perspective. In May of 2000, he stood before his church in Philadelphia and he explained that he had been diagnosed with liver cancer. Notice what he said. Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that God, who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Please don't misunderstand. Man, there are, there are healings and miracles, honestly, I'm praying for right now. 
I'm praying right now, God, would you intervene on behalf of my friend? God, this family, they're suffering because of, God, I'm praying that you would intervene. I'm asking that you would heal. God, would you please touch them as the great physician? I'm praying all of those things and, and I, I invite you to do so. But, but if we do just back up a little bit and we say, but God, please magnify your glory, then we have started to understand something about the value of our God and that he is good. Think about the kind of father that is first and foremost concerned that his children love him. Okay, now think, the kind of father that his primary concern is that his children love him. If that is his chief end, to what lengths will that father not go? He is then bound to continually meet the needs of the child and will, in that selfish pursuit of being loved, sacrifice the child's future good for the father's own needs. God isn't primarily motivated that he should act in ways that make us love him, but rather he would form us into those who recognize the outpouring of his love. Okay, so many in here um, have watched, if you have children, many of you have watched a transformation take place that's really quite remarkable. And I'm not talking about the transformation that takes place with your children. I'm talking about the transformation that takes place with those people who are your parents after you have provided them with grandchildren, okay? I mean, they really do. They, something changes about them. I mean, a, a parent who would send you to bed without dinner because you gave them the look, okay? If you did that to their grandchildren, they're calling the police on you, okay? Because this is uh, clearly not wrong. And then they start to say things like, um, well, hey, 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 go easy. They're just tired. Did that ever work with you? Uh, Mom, I'm just tired. Listen, you might be tired, but you're gonna, okay, I mean, they're going you know, full on ninja on you because whatever you did, it's just, I mean, we kind of scratch our heads. We say, what in the world happened to these people? This is not, what did you do with my father? Okay, exactly, all right. So. <laughs> Give them to the grandparent. <laughs> okay, so think about God in terms of, of a grandparent. And again, Grandparents, man, we love you and keep spoiling your grandkids, but is really that the kind of God that we want? Is that the kind of God that is more concerned about his children loving him than he is about making his children truly lovable? Some of us want to see God as a permissive grandparent whose tolerance or whose generosity is motivated by a desire to see their grandchildren happy in their presence rather than as a loving father who longs to see his children truly joyful beyond the momentary and the fleeting happiness that he may be able to provide. A loving father will go to incredible lengths and seemingly endless trouble to see his child grow to maturity and then be able to know the reality of true joy and lasting pleasure. Good fathers desire something that's more valuable than the momentary distractions. 
that give the appearance of happiness, but can never truly deliver the same. Because God is good. And because he loves us, his goodness demands that he loves us by making us more lovable. And if you ever recognize that in every instance in this life where man has created a path to pain, God has created an alternative path that brings ultimate resolution to the pain. No, God may not remove the pain, but he does bring ultimate resolution to the same. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said some things that are obvious. He says, I want you to know this. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't hide anything here. He's not trying to sugarcoat your life. And he's not trying to say, hey, listen, come to Jesus. And then I will sugarcoat your path. You come to me and I'll resolve the problem of your sickness immediately. Come to me and the loneliness that you experience. Listen, you're never going to be lonely again. Come to me and I'm going to resolve every issue, every challenge, every problem, every heartache. He says, no, in this world, there will be tribulation. But I want you to know, you can take heart and take hope. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying that this fallen, broken world is marked by tribulation. Tribulation that's the result of man's choice of disobedience against God. But notice what he goes on to say, I've overcome the world. He's saying that because he overcame it, he has blazed a trail for us to follow and to do the same. It's not an avoidance of the brokenness of the world. It's just a radically different outcome. And I would submit to you that God in his goodness has left a pathway to victory that addresses every one of man's failures. Every sickness, every pain, every loss. This is why at the end of our trials and tribulation, we can read, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The hurt, the loss, the pain, all of this that came as a result of our own waywardness, it's completely resolved because of the good work of Jesus Christ. So we go back again to Genesis 1 and ask, because God's work in creation is good, what does that tell us about God? It tells us that God is good and therefore God does good. Okay, it's one thing to hear that somebody's a good cook. Okay. It's another thing to be invited over to their house for dinner. And do you know what God has done all throughout our, the experience of our life? God has in very real ways, he said, hey, I wanna invite you over for dinner. Come on, take a seat at my table. And then God says something that we've, we've said it, we've sung it, but he says, oh, taste and see. There's now this experiential invitation. He says, now listen, in this world, you're gonna have tribulation, but I want you to taste this. This is not the full expression of his goodness. It's just a taste. 
He says, I want you to taste and see, experience that I am good. There's a blessing involved for those who will trust in him. It's not, again, the full extent, but it is a wonderful taste of that which is to come. So how do we taste his goodness today? Well, I would say we, we taste it in a variety of ways, one of which is the goodness of his gifts. How do we taste today? Oh, just the goodness of his gifts. The Bible says in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good thing that we've ever experienced in our entire life came exclusively from the hand of a good father. From the father, the Bible says, of light. As grand and glorious are the forms of light created by God, God outshines them all. And further, we understand this statement to again remind us that God is only good. John, 1 John 1, 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The creator of lights, the father of lights, in him is not the slightest degree, not even a shadow of darkness is found in him. Either God is always and only exclusively good or he is not. He's not, well, he's good. No, 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 no. He is good. In fact, we would say, God, when I see your plan all together, I see it's very good. No inkling, no shadow of turning. Have you ever thought about the fact that the stars that we look and see and, and the planets that, that speak of the glory of God, they're in this continual act of rotation, of spinning, of turning, but the Bible says not God. You're never gonna say, what side of the bed did he get up on today? No, God is always exclusively only, no shadow, no inkling of a change. He's only always good. How do we know, how do we taste his goodness today? Well, we do so by tasting the goodness of his gifts. How else do we know that God is good? The goodness of his grace, the goodness of his grace. While we often think of grace as a New Testament theme, the Old Testament is rich in the grace of God. The first time it's used is found in a passage and we'll give it more attention later in this book of beginnings, the study in Genesis. But the Bible records it simply this way. Genesis 6, 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Don't you love the simple but very powerful pictures that scriptures paint for us? Noah discovered grace in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, this means that God was providing something that Noah didn't deserve. He hadn't earned. And yet, as Noah looks, so to speak, into the face of God, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God was going to provide something good, not because of the goodness of the recipient, but because of the goodness of the giver. Aren't you grateful that God gives us graciously, not according to our goodness, but according to his. 
In our lives, how often do we think, well, God, I did do this this week, and so, so you're gonna do this for me, right? Do you know God does good things for you regardless of what you did this week? You say, well, why does he do that? Because he's not keeping tabs. He's not saying, okay, you do this, this, this. Then we'll come to an understanding that I'll do this, this, and this. No, God displays his goodness through his grace. And would any mention of grace be complete without at least a mention of Hebrews 4.16? Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the midst of a world that's marked by the reality of evil, God made a provision that is another demonstration of his goodness. And that is grace to help just when we need it. Listen, is abuse good? Is marital infidelity good? Is a wayward child good? Is anxiety or gender dysphoria or depression or loneliness or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or cancer good? None of these in and of themselves are good. But in his goodness, God provides grace that is enough, grace that is timely and grace that never lacks in supply. It's, it's why someone could take and I suspect have the words flow easily from their pen as they would write words like marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. How do we know that God is good? Well, we know because of the goodness of his gifts. We know because of the goodness of his grace. And, and we, we can't not mention, we know because of the goodness of the gospel. The word gospel means good news and good news it is. First Peter chapter three, verse number 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by his spirit. The just one, Jesus died for the unjust ones. Listen, for you and me, that is good news. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse number one, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the good news, the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. That is good news. L let me ask you, was Christ's suffering a part of God's good plan? Okay, now think, all right, so process. Was Christ's suffering part of God's good plan. Well, he, he had a plan, this, this wonderful plan to redeem mankind, to restore him and his relationship to him. And we call the gospel good news. And at the very heart of the gospel, it is the just one dying for the unjust one. So was Christ's death part of the, the good plan of God? And yet how often do we remove ourselves from the good plan of God because it may not be our definition or expectation of goodness. 
Clearly, I don't pretend to know your difficulties, your pain, your sorrow, or what you might refer to as your bitter cup. But what I do know is that God is good, always and only. And part of that goodness sounds like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ah, there's the rub, there's the challenge. That's the head scratching like, do you know what that meant then for Jesus, the just one? Yeah, I do, but, but God has a plan. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news. Good news for us, but a bitter cup for Jesus. But Jesus said, even as the bitter cup was before him, Father, if thou be willing, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Father, if you're willing, but not my will. And now, isn't it wonderful that that the man, Christ Jesus, has sent from heaven timely grace? Grace that meets us right where we are. Grace that is sufficient for the challenge. Grace that never lacks in supply. Grace that is freely bestowed on all who believe. Now Jesus himself is strengthened from heaven for that which is before him. Oh, to be able to say to the father of lights who sends his strengthening angels just when we need them. For us to say, not my will, but thine be done. And then to see his good plan unfold, a plan that includes you and me. In Hebrews eleven sixteen, notice what we're told. But now they desire a better country a better country. In other words, I'm not living for just this world. They desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he hath prepared them a city. And I might add, not only has he prepared them a city, he's preparing them for the same. Isn't God a loving father? who loves us more than to leave us as we are, but he continues to prepare us to enjoy him throughout all of eternity in a place where he will have wiped away every tear. Because God is good. He is preparing a city for you. And he is preparing you for the city. In Psalm 135 verse three, the Bible says, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. In Psalm 100, verse number five, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. Lamentations, the great lament, chapter three, verse 25, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. And in Nahum 1, seven, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. All the rest of scriptures are going to hinge on what you do with the claims made in Genesis chapter one. I would submit to you 
that he is not only good, he is always and only good. And the question left for all of us today, regardless of our circumstances, are you willing to come and bow your will to his goodness? Not so much asking God, God, what are you doing for me that shows your goodness? But rather, God, because you are good, what can I do for you?